Welcome to this week's episode of Startups for the Rest of Us. I'm your host, Rob Walling. This week's show is a founder hot seat with David Heller, where we talk through troubleshooting enterprise sales. This is Startups for the Rest of Us, episode 463. Welcome to Startups for the Rest of Us, the podcast that helps developers, designers, and entrepreneurs be awesome at building, launching, and growing startups. Whether you've built your fifth startup or you're thinking about your first. I'm Rob, and today with David Heller, we're going to share our experiences to help you avoid the mistakes we've made. Each week on this show, we cover topics relating to building and growing startups in an ambitious fashion, but in a way where we're not willing to sacrifice our life or our health to grow a company. We like to be meticulous, disciplined, and have repeatable processes, have things that we could do again if we needed to. Maybe we'll run the same company for 30 years, but maybe we'll wind up moving on, putting a CEO in place, maybe we'll sell our company, and we wanna know that we can do this again with a relatively high level of success. And that's unusual in, in this world of startups, because so many of the startups that we see are these one-off unicorn, you know, one in 100,000, one in 10,000 startups. And that's not what we're looking for here on this show. Today, I'm excited to speak with a tiny seed founder named David Heller. He's the co-founder of Reimbi, and we're going to dig into his trials and tribulations uh, in a hot seat format. We have many formats on the show. Oftentimes, we yeah, bring so folks on for in-depth interviews. We answer a lot of listener questions. Uh, we do some tactics, some teaching. Sometimes I just wax philosophical, but Founder Hot Seat is where we bring a founder in and really focus on something that he or she is struggling with at that moment and try to think through it as two intelligent founders, almost like we're standing in front of a whiteboard, batting ideas back and forth. And a lot of times it's, here's the problem. Here's a potential solution. Have you tried that? Yes or no. What do you think? What's your gut feel? Do you, would you feel comfortable trying that? And, and that's what I enjoy about these hot seat formats. Over and over, we've gotten only positive feedback about the hot seat formats because they go beyond just teaching. You know, I've, I've had this concept I've been thinking about for a while in that a lot of podcasts will teach, they'll teach information, teach stuff from a topic, but I feel like I've enjoyed transforming this podcast into more of a mass mentorship. I believe more in mentorship than teaching. I think you get a lot more from being mentored and frankly, from being a mentor than just someone who is is reading off instructions or, or giving kind of blanket advice that you read in a book or maybe you have experienced it, but that isn't applicable to any one individual. And you know that's where mass mentorship has context, right? It has more context about a founder's situation. And in the case of listener questions, we have context around when a listener writes in or calls in, they give us background and ask a very specific question. It's not about just some random topic. We, you know, here's 10 ways to do a landing page. And they ask a question, oh, what are, what's an 11th way to do a landing page? How do you do that one right and this one wrong? You know, what does it look like to do that right versus wrong? They're actually asking specifically, hey, here is my landing page. What have I done right? Or here is my pricing or here's a conundrum. And so it context is that next step towards it being more of a mentorship relationship. And obviously it's not a one-on-one -on -one, and that's why I'm saying it's kind of a, a mass mentorship idea. And the founder hot seats take it even a step further where we have a lot of back and forth. And so I can present an idea, a thought, a solution, proposed solution. And David in this case can respond and say, we've already tried that, or I'm not willing to try that. And here's why I think it won't work. Or, hey, I think that's a great idea. And the beauty of it is 
it's not just to help David. It's to help the tens of thousands of people who listen to this podcast, both to hear the thought process of two intelligent, you know, successful founders who are thinking through a hard problem, but also to hopefully, you know, they might be struggling with something similar or something related and they can take away some uh, ideas from it. In addition, on the show today, we walked through some some issues that I think some of some listeners out there, you know, you might be listening to this and think, oh, I've I've solved that already, or here's something I tried and it worked. And I would love to hear from you. Questions at Startups for the Rest of Us, if that's the case. Before we dive into the hot seat, I actually had a listener ask me a question and, and I felt like it, it was worth addressing on the podcast. And he said, hey, you know, Mike, he took the hiatus and that made sense. And now he's coming on the show only once a month. Like what, you know, what actually is going on there? And the answer to that is Mike has really wanted to focus on Blue Tick. As you've heard, he is off social media. He is heads down. He's doing, you know, stuff with his friends, with his family, and he is focused on growing Blue Tick. And that is his number one goal. And frankly, I wholeheartedly support him in that. And I have been in that heads down mode as well when I'm trying to get something off the ground. And it's not just the hours, it's just the mental, kind of the mental ability to focus on something and only think about that. And that's your one thing, the one metric, the one number you're trying to drive. And so, you know, with that focus does come not wanting to, you know, show up every week and record a podcast episode on something and have to come up with an outline and have to just do all of that. And again, it's not that it's that much time, but it's a, a lack of focus. And, you know, Mike and I have been talking for a while about how to mix up the podcast because the, you know, we get 450 episodes into something. We're almost 10 years into this podcast and it's easy to get in a rut and it's easy to have a format that, that doesn't change and that can start to feel a little dated, frankly. And so I took the opportunity while Mike was off for a couple months on his, on his quick hiatus to obviously revamp it and to do more hot seats and to do more interviews and to do more thought pieces and, and think about how... I, if I were starting a podcast today, how would I do it? And how can I be different than all the other shows that are out there? And so that's, that's what I've been trying to do during this time. And so for now, Mike, you know, is going to be coming on the show periodically. I think following his journey is valuable for me. And I really enjoy when he and I get on the mic, there's just, it's like putting on that, that nice pair of slippers. Um, Mike and I have recorded hundreds, literally hundreds and hundreds of episodes. And his are the episodes I prepare for the least, feel the most comfortable, and I think turn out really well. All the other ones are outside of my comfort zone, you know, so it's stretching me, which is a good thing. That's, that's when I know that I'm, I'm learning. But that gives you an idea, hopefully, of, of, you know, what's really going on behind the scenes in the podcast. And, and we don't, honestly don't know what the future will hold. You know, six months, 12 months, like what, is, what does it look like? We're just taking it month by month at this point. And, you know, obviously I think all of us wish Mike the, uh, you know, the best as he's focusing and doubling down on Blue Tick. And he'll be back on again a couple episodes from now. So with that, let's dive into the hot seat. I want to give you a little background about David Heller. David and his co-founder, Paul Trojanowski founded Reimbi several years ago, and it is at reimbi.com, and it addresses the difficult and lengthy process of reimbursing job candidates for interview expenses. It's a, a kind of in the HR vertical, and they have really good traction, actually. And, and Reimbi is a tiny seed company. They're part of our first batch, one of the 10 companies in that first batch. Uh, they launched back in 2017, and 
Paul is the technical co-founder, and David, who I'm speaking with today, uh, was a B2B product manager, worked in large organizations. He had eight years in the U.S. Army, and he brings a ton of experience. And Reimbi, you know, has clients including Waste Management, Bridgewater, Kimberly Clark, and Peloton. So they have traction for a relatively early stage startup in this space. And me and the rest of the Tiny Seed team are impressed with how they've been executing on this opportunity. And so today we're going to dig into just a couple issues that that David is feeling with their enterprise sales process. He's got it dialed in pretty well, and they're landing big clients. So it really, you know, it's, we've moved from from boulders to rocks to pebbles at this point. But it's pretty fascinating to hear the things that are still troubling him with their process, and we troubleshoot and, and try to figure out how to fix those. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with David Heller. So, David, thank you so much for uh, joining me on the show today. Yeah, it's good to be here, Rob. Thanks for having me. And you're a listener as well, right? I have been a listener for quite a while. So, yeah, yeah. That's cool. So, it's it's a pleasure to have you. And I, uh, you know, I think today's episode and digging into kind of some of the challenges you've, you know, you've been facing and are currently facing, I think it'll be helpful to think through and, and helpful for the listeners. You know, we don't do that many hot seat episodes. They're often hard to set up and it's hard to find a really good problem to dig into, but uh, I think we have have a pretty good one today. Do you want to kind of kick us off and, and explain the high level of, of what we'll be thinking through? And then we can dig into, I know there's some individual points underneath that kind of umbrella. Sure. So with Reembi, we're generally selling into larger enterprises. So Fortune 1000 and up is our target customer. And we aren't selling where they just sign up with a credit card. We're going through the contract process. There's usually a PO involved. We sometimes have to do security, go through security reviews. So we're doing many of the steps that even if it was SAP or Concur or some large workday, they would have to go through to sell into these companies. We're having to do that, but as a small startup. And that's kind of the problem that I've been thinking through for the last couple of years and working through and iterating on to try to make better. And that's what I hope you and I can chat through. Yeah. And I mean, you know, I've, I've traditionally called this high touch sales. Like you really have, it's not face to face, but it's one step away from that, you know, and, and I've used this term in the past, I say low touch sales is pretty much low touch or no touch is typically someone comes self sign up. I guess that's technically no touch. Low touch is well, maybe some people need help to get on. And then I've always thought of medium as like what we did with drip where anybody over a certain dollar amount, let's say they're over the 49 or over the $99 plan. It's like, let's funnel them into a sales or a customer success call. Let's get them onboarded because it's just the lifetime value is there to be able to do it. But you really have been from the start dealing with Fortune 1000s. And, and that, of course, is is going to be high touch. And they, they're going to kind of, of demand that and they kind of deserve it because of the dollar amounts that they pay. And I know that you know, as part of Tiny Seed, you know, I, I know what your financials look like and your LTVs absolutely justify the time that you spend doing this. So, it, you know, it's it's a good problem to have in the sense of it is a problem, especially when you're a small team to be doing high touch for every customer. But it's a good problem in that your every customer you land, your MRR goes up by a lot more than most apps, to be honest, than you know, most SaaS apps that are selling twenty or thirty dollars a month. So, to give people an idea of that, on your website, you publish your pricing. What do, what do your pricing plans range from uh, on monthly plans? So, posted on the site, we have three pre-packaged plans that start. The lowest one is seventy-five dollars, but we don't have but a handful of customers on that, and then it goes up 
to $500 a month. And then we have what's listed as an enterprise plan with a custom quote. And over our half of our customers are on that enterprise custom quote. Very good. So yeah, let's uh, let's dig in. I think this topic will be particularly interesting to those listeners who are also starting in this space. Um, we've definitely gotten emails about this over the past many years we've been doing the show. And while I think the, the dream early on when you start a SaaS for many of us, especially the developer types, is that you build a no-touch SaaS solution. <laughs> but realistically, like A, that's getting harder, and B, it takes a long time. Your churn is high. You tend to peak out at whatever 10, 20, 30K MRR, you can't get over that. So it depends on what you want to build. But having medium touch and high touch sales, I think is is relevant to almost any business, especially ones where you can get customers at at least 100, 200 bucks a month and up. So let's talk about, you know, what kind of issues you're you're facing and let's let's bat them around. Yeah, I think the, the first one is the the long sales cycle. So we'll have customers that will reach out and it's usually somebody from recruiting that comes to us because they're interested in improving candidate experience and they, they see ReMB, they talk through it, or we talk through it with them, and then they have to go off and talk to accounting or procurement because there's just multiple stakeholders that are involved in the candidate reimbursement process. So, so there's this kind of the circling of wagons inside of our customer and we've got our champion and that's great and we really foster that relationship. But it seems like no matter what we do, the sales process is going to be long. Sometimes we catch you know, lightning in a bottle and, and it goes really quick, but generally we're talking up to six months. And sometimes it's even longer than that where somebody will reach out to us and then they'll just disappear. And then they'll all of a sudden, you know, even after follow-ups, unprompted show up a year later and say, hey, okay, we're ready now. And so, so the sales process and getting through that is probably our number one issue in, in selling to enterprises is just how long it takes to get from that first contact to a signed order form or contract. Yeah, and is is there a particular place where this gets held up? Like, is it is it often one demo and the stakeholder says thumbs up and then it takes the months? Or is it repeated demos to multiple groups to on and on and on? Where, where does the hang up typically happen or is it or is it varied? It's usually in legal, sometimes in procurement. So we'll do the demo. And over the last couple of years, we've got much better at getting the right people on the call for that first demo. So we don't have to do a second or third one. Not that we're perfect on that. So we've, we've done that. And so, so we, we've mostly solved that problem. Yeah. So once everyone's like, yep, this is what we need, this solves our problem, and then send over the order form, and then it just sits in legal whatever that is, this black box that no one can seem to crack of, of getting it through legal or, or through procurement. And so that's, that's usually the, the sticking point. Right. It's when there's, there's essentially a third party involved. I know they're within the same company, but at companies this large, it's like that person sitting in the other, even if it's on the same campus, it's like, yeah, they're like a mile walk away because they're in an entirely different thing. And I don't know this person, so I can't rush it through legal. And it's just in some queue somewhere. Right. So that's interesting. I mean, the way I think about it is, is there any motivation for them to process it faster. And it doesn't sound like there is, right? I think of, of like having an external motivator to make someone act. And so if you go, you know, if you think about online marketing as an example, you don't just say sign up for my newsletter, you say sign up for my email list and you get this, this ebook, right? There's like an opt-in reward. And oftentimes to put time pressure on people 
you know, info marketers have taken too far, but they'll say, hey, this is only available, this price is only available for the next 12 hours and then, you know, or this on this webinar or whatever. But I have heard of, and I'm curious how this, how this might pan out. I have heard of there being like, hey, th- this is our pricing if we can get this signed in the next 60 days or next 30 days. You don't have to give them, you, you don't have to say in the next five days, right? But you can say this price is only good for this long and then it goes up or whether it's a, the reason is our prices are going up or, hey, it's the end of the quarter and we're trying to make you know goals, trying to make a quota or whatever the justification is for it. I don't know. You could frame it as either a savings of like, hey, if you get this done, the real price is 500, but we'll give it to you for 400. You know, we'll give you a discount. And then you just raise your prices to make that make sense for you. Or you tell them, hey, this has to go up at this point. And frankly, and the reason that I'm internally able to justify that myself is the longer it takes, the more headache it is for you, the more follow-up, like the more cost the sale is is costing you, the more money it's costing you. So I'm curious, A, have you ever heard of anyone doing that? And B, do you feel like that could, obviously it could backfire, but do you feel like it could potentially be a motivator for someone to say, let's get this done. You know, let's get this on the fast track. Cause there has to be a way to fast track these. And that's what we're trying to figure out is as an external party, how can we help your stakeholder figure out, you know, some type of, of carrot or stick to, to get it uh, fast tracked. Yeah. And so we've, we've tried and probably in the last three months. So we'll, we'll add a discount on the order form is if, you know, if, if this is signed by this date and it's like, like you said, it's not, it's not by tomorrow cause that's just not reasonable, but you know, in the next 30 days or 15 days, then basically what we're doing is giving you this line item on the order form for free. And so it's, it's almost like an upgrade in their minds. And then they get the, get that discounted out or lined out and get it for free for the first year if they can sign by this date. And, and that it's, it's hard to tell because no one, no one will come back to you and say, yeah, we, we signed this quickly because you put that discount in. <laughs> They're not going to like kind of give you that feedback that, that your carrot worked. At least no one had so far. And then if it doesn't work, no one's come back and like had a negative reaction to that. No one said, oh, that's unreasonable. Like, I, I don't know why you're like doing that. So it, there hasn't been any downside to doing it. I think about it from a motivation standpoint because I spent time working in procurement. So procurement people are measured by cost savings. So if they can, they can say, hey, we signed this contract and we were able to save $2,000 because we signed the contract faster than then that's, that's motivation for that procurement person. So I, that was kind of my thought process of putting it in there. But that doesn't work with legal. So I haven't figured out what that motivation is for legal yet. So we have tried that, that line item, and I just I can't tell yet whether it's working. We've had contracts that were signed before the date, and they, they were kicked in. We've also had it where they were not signed. They, they ultimately were signed, but after the discount. And I removed the discount. And no one said, can you please still give that to us? There hasn't been any downside to doing it yet. So we're going to keep doing that. So yeah, that's kind of my experience with that so far. Yeah, I like that. Well, I'm glad you got there all on your own. I think it makes sense. I can't think of a, of a reason that legal would move faster either. I mean, that, that is traditionally a thing. I mean, we, we pay our lawyers directly and they take way too long. You know what I mean? It's like, that's just, it's, it's one thing. And I'm starting to rack, trying to rack my brain of like, well, could you minimize back and forth by having your contracts extremely Fortune 1000 
ready, you know, or, but you probably already do, right? And there, and each lawyer is going to read it differently. Each company is going to have different standards. There's always going to be some back and forth. So, I'm not sure I have, you know, any any insights there other than what you're doing, which is I know you're following up every week or whatever, and just saying, hey, is it there? Hey, is it there? Hey, is it there? And that, I think that's that's what I'd be doing too. The biggest thing that I think about with long sales cycles is how can I get double the the leads in the pipeline such that if it takes six months to close, if I only have one in the pipeline, then I wait six months. But if I have six in the pipeline, then I'm actually closing one every month. That is the other, that's the other way I like to flip it on its head is like, what, is there any way possible to get just purely just more leads to that point? Right. How about on those you know, on the follow-up emails, because I, I don't have the legal contact, right? I don't have the name of the attorney or the paralegal or whoever that's sitting there holding the contract. So in the follow-up emails to my champion or to whomever that, that I do have contact with, you know, th- maybe even thinking about it, like from a drip marketing standpoint is, is like motivating those people to follow up or to arm them with, you know, how to make progress. Cause that's, I mean, I'm, I think I'm not doing a good job on that. I do follow up frequently, but it's almost, it's like, Hey, any update, you know, what's new. And I don't feel like that's very successful. Two things just came to me. One is, have you ever talked to anyone who you weren't selling to, who worked at a fortune 1000 company in either of these roles, either of the legal role or the kind of the champion role and just ask, you know, whether it's like your neighbor, you know, down the street or whether it's someone you've met at microconf who you, you say, how does this work? And what should we be doing here? There has to be some inside secrets to this. You know, it's like knowing the, the secret menu at, at in and out or, or a secret handshake or something. Yeah, I am. Um, so we, I, I have one, I know we did it once. So there's actually, so we have a customer just incredibly long process that we've gone through with them. And and then in the end, it's the uh, procurement person that was actually on some of the calls, which is also helpful, like if you can get the procurement person on the call. So he had let me know that he was leaving the company and was handing off. So I kind of took that as an opportunity, like, okay, I'm going to go talk to him now that he's not kind of tied to the company. And like, what could we have done better here like, to, to make this move faster? And he was just like, it's, that's just the beast. And, and I don't think it's, they're that much different than most companies. It just takes a long time and it's, it is frustrating because then, you know, you, you, you kind of like the, the logical thing then is to try to raise prices to account for the lengthy sales cycle. But then you start, like you start running into this value equation problem. Like how much value am I actually providing? And then like, can I just price more because enterprises make it so difficult? <laughs> so yeah, I, well, that's one of the reasons that these, that enterprise apps are so expensive. You know, when you look at, at two, three, four grand a month and you're like, oh my God, our annual contract value, 30, 40, 50 grand. How can they justify that? This is how they justify it, is that it just takes so many person hours to close a deal. And so, yeah, if I, this is this is a good one. If you're listening to this and you are on the inside of a Fortune 1000 and you've thought, wow, here's something that David could be doing that, you know, could, could help speed this up, specifically with the legal side, because it sounds like you've made some headway with the procurement, uh, you know, with a kind of monetary incentive. Feel free to uh, write in questions at startupsfortherestofus.com or you can post a comment on this episode, which is uh, episode 400. 63. Back to your question about the emails and how to get them to, you're, you're saying you're almost trying to arm them, right? Or, or allow them to, to, to do it. I think the two things I would think of that you'd have, you'd have to try this and see how it works. But one is 
make the email easily, make it summarize everything so it's easily just forwardable. So they can just hit hit F and say, hey, legal, what's up? See below, you know, and you've basically summarized the whole thing for them of like, hey, just reminding you, I know this is in legal. I know it went in on this date. And you could even say, typically these turn around in 14 days, but I haven't heard from you and blah, blah, blah. And they could kind of forward it over there. That arms them with something that they don't have to create a big case. You've cre- create their case for them in the writing. And then I think the other thing is, as you said, getting them on the phone, you know, with procurement is helpful. So if you're not already suggesting that in your later stage, maybe you don't do that in the first one when you check in, but if you're on the second, third, fourth, is that part of your ask where you're like, hey, I just want to check in. Should we all just hop on the phone? I can totally do that. You know, at, at a certain point, you don't want to be too forward. You don't want to be the salesperson, right, who's stomping on feet. But at a certain point, that may be, uh, may be worth doing. Yeah, I, I'm always looking for that that magic word or something, the phrase that's going to unlock, unlock things, but I haven't found it yet. But that's that's good advice. So what else? I feel like we've covered that pretty well. You had mentioned like these long forms or checklists or something that you have to fill out. Yeah. So it's not uncommon for us to have to go through some sort of security review or, you know, fill out a form that talks about our security that we have with Reembi. And, and they're all, I would say there's 80% overlap from company to company on the questions that they've they want us to answer. So I think one thing we've done is we're kind of building up this library of of here's a here's a regular question and here's our answer to try to make it so it's that much easier to fill these out and just, you know, cut and paste and, and put that in there. But what, something that happened recently is one of the questions on the forms usually is like how many people do you have or you know, do you have like a chief security officer and the things I mean, we're really small. <laughs> and, and so I was on a, on a call with a, a security person at a, it was actually, a, they're already a customer, but they're expanding internationally to use ReMB outside of the US. And that caused some additional scrutiny and review. So I was on a call with their security person and, and he asked me, how many people do you have? And so the answer to that is three. <laughs> and, but that doesn't sound at least to me, like I definitely hesitated when I was answering that question. And, you know, cause I, you know, I want to be transparent. I'm not going to say, you know, something that's incorrect, but I mean, that's just a topic for me. And it's always a concern going through those is, are we sophisticated enough in answering the security form and like, you know, what our procedures are and all of this stuff when, you know, literally there's three of us and we're just, you know, just grinding every day and just trying to get it done. So, so that's, that's been a, a challenge that we're continuously trying to get better at. Yeah, I, I can imagine that. I mean, with the checklists and the forms, that's also the cost of doing business as I see it and, and just getting more efficient with having a wiki or notion or whatever you're using to, to collect that I think is, you know, is good and delegate. That's the other thing, right? Is right now I'm sure you're, you're doing most of it. I could see a, frankly, a $20 an hour VA able to fill out 80%. If, if 80% of it really is similar and you train someone and then you show them the repo of questions, you send it off, you pay $15 for three quarters of an hour or full hour for someone to get it 80% of the way there, they send it back and then it's only 15 minutes of your time. That'd be, that's a really good human automation task, you know, because it's something that you can't automate with code and you're not going to not fill them out. I mean, that's a requirement of it. So that, that'd probably be the only, you know, next step that I would, I would consider taking. One thing I've been, and, and yeah, I, I definitely can be delegating the, uh, some of this. Another thing I've been considering and like to get your thoughts on is contracting just like on a one-time 
fixed fee deliverable basis is like a CISO person, someone that's, you know, got the certifications, been through this, probably it's worked in an enterprise as a security person and have them go through our answers and look at it from, from the reviewer's perspective on what's being looked at. And then also on those areas that we're completely lacking on or, you know, insufficient on, on what's the right answer? What's the right way to answer this question so that we can get through the security review? I think that's a great idea. And I think the cool part about looking for the right answer is what's the right answer such that, that we can make that be the truth? You know, if the right answer is something we're not doing today, how, how about we start doing that such that the right answer is, is actually what we're doing? I love that idea. And to be honest, I know uh, a guy who was like a chief security officer at about a 175 person startup. If you need to connect, who, who may be able to do that? Actually, I, I know a few who who probably would wouldn't charge very much to you know walk through it for a few hours and give you their opinions. So that's I love that idea. I think that's great, and that's the beauty of having the repository of your answers is that then you can those can be a living, breathing document, and you can really refine this you know over time. Back to your other piece, I, I was fascinated by the, you know, what to say when they ask how many employees you have. I mean, that that is an issue with a lot of companies, especially, you know, a lot of startups, folks who would listen to this podcast. And I think you're right. I don't, it's not okay to lie because that's not, because it's not okay. And and whether you get caught or whether you don't, it's, you know, you don't want to, you don't want to be running business like that. The way I think about it is this. Your number is your number. And, you know, I know that, that you're three full-time employees and Typically, I would think, hey, if I had two or three part-timers who were, you know, significantly doing some, even if they were doing design work or a support role or something, I would add them. I would, I would include them in there. So I would say, hey, there's six people working on the product or whatever. That gives you a little bit of a, of a bump. But we talked before the call, and that's really, you know, not the case in your in your instance. So I think that, yeah, you're. I think you're loud and proud with the number three. But I think the way I would think about couching it is like in my head. Is three important? What's the most important thing? What are they trying to get out with that question? They're trying to figure out, have you been around a while? Are you going to stay around? Are you doing best practices? Are you any good? You know, it's that kind of stuff. And so when I think that's the underlying, the underlying questions they're asking in that question. And so I would almost, without trying to couch it too much, it would be like, well, we're three employees, but we've been in business now for three and a half years. We have 45 clients or whatever, you know, whatever the number is, including waste management. I forget who all your clients are. I mean, you have some really big names that are already trusting you. So that's credibility. And you can point out that like we're, we're a focused team. We don't need a large team. We're actually a profitable company and we have funding. And, you know, th- there's, there's ways to kind of build, credibility is the wrong word, but it's, it's build uh, some concrete things for them to hang on to. Because I know it's the, this is not the sales prospect. You've already sold the deal right? It's typically, it's like a chief security officer. It's someone who's trying to, to suss it out. So they don't know all of that. They probably haven't looked at any of your marketing material. You know, they probably don't know how long you've been in business or, or that Kimberly Clark or whoever, you know, are, are your customers. So I think casually pointing those things out, giving them the exact right number, but then couching it with like, hey, you know, these are, these are our other credibility building factors. Yeah, and that that's good. I and I, I didn't do that, and that that would have been a, a a good way of of supplementing the answer instead of just saying three and then just pausing. <laughs> this awkward pause. He caught you off guard too. So that's when it, when you get caught off guard, that often happens, right? You don't think about the right answer until the next time, which is cool because next time you you will get asked this again, and you'll be able to be prepared. 
Yeah, because like you said, it, and it's credibility, and like, he's he's assessing risk. He's just trying to make sure, like, how much risk are they are they taking on by you know handing off this process to Reambi, and is it going to you know come back to to haunt them? Right. And that's the other thing you could lend. I mean, I know they already have it all laid out, your data architecture and your encryption and all that. But I know your your co-founder is is the technical, you know, arm of of the company. If he has any relevant experience, you know, where it's like, well, you know, and, and my co-founder was in worked in the banking industry for 10 years as a developer, you know, it's just something like anything like that to imply we know what we're doing, basically, I think is, is helpful. Or even yourself, frankly. I know you worked in, in the industry, you know, before that, and you worked for larger companies. It's like, yeah, I worked in the Fortune 500 for, for 15 years before this, so did my co-founder, and we're a focused team and, and blah, blah, blah. I think there's, what I like is that, so anytime I get caught off guard with a question like that, I'm the same way. I tend to kind of freeze, I'll save something, and then an hour later, I'm like, ugh, I did not like that answer. And, and everyone can do that. The next step, though, the way you get better is you say, so what should I have said? What's the best answer to that? Because now, every time you get it gets asked, you know, you'll have that answer right at your fingertips and it'll come off smooth. And I bet they'll, I bet they'll be impressed because I, I'm imagining that not everyone, not everyone does well on that question. Yeah. And then getting that documented as well. Like what is, because, you know, I'm not going to be on that call every time forever. And, and, you know, whether it's Abby or Paul or, you know, whoever's going to be on that call that we all like, this is the answer to this question. <laughs> and, you know, every time there'll be a new one and we'll add it to the library. But yeah, I think having that and just like building up the team's knowledge would be really helpful. Yeah, I agree. I like your sense of there, there's several people in the, the tiny seed batch who are really into finding the right answer and then making sure it's documented. And that is, that is a weakness of mine. It's not a strength, you know, in terms of process and documentation. I tend to fly by the seat of my pants. I, I get, what do you call it, inspired. And then I, you know, go do something and I like what happens and I get the instant feedback, but I don't go back and kind of systematize it. And that I, I think is a, is a real strong suit of yours, especially when dealing with these big companies, because you are going to do the same kind of slog work as we've talked about here over and over, long sales cycles, large checklists, odd questions about company size on a call. And, and, you know, the more you can do to document that, I think the better off you'll be. Yep. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show today, David. I appreciate your time and glad we were able to chat through this stuff. I think it was helpful for listeners as well. If folks want to keep up with you, aside from going to reimbi.com, R-E-I-M-B-I.com to check out what you're up to, what's the best place for them to uh, keep in touch? So because we do enterprise-y stuff, I'm on LinkedIn a lot. So you can find David Heller and Reimbi. So that's one spot to connect with me. And then on Twitter, we're Reimbi underscore app. And I'm at David Heller. Sounds great. Thanks again. All right. Thanks, Rob. If you have any questions for David or you feel like you have a thought or idea on how he could you know, get around some of the issues that he's facing, please do send us an email at questions at startupsfortherestofus.com or you can leave us a voicemail at 888-801-9690. Next episode, I'll be talking with Steli Efti of Close.com and we'll of course be digging into sales topics. Our theme music is an excerpt from We're Out of Control by Moot, used under Creative Commons. Subscribe to us by searching for startups and visit startupsfortherestofus.com for a full transcript of each episode. With the new Startups for the Rest of Us website, I have resurrected the email list. If you're not on our email list, you really should be. Head over to startupsfortherestofus.com, enter your email. We don't email that often, but when we do, it's good stuff. So startupsfortherestofus.com to get on that list. Thanks for listening today. See you next time.